Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we are back. From a little hiatus, I, I didn't actually intend for it to be a hiatus, but that's just the way it goes sometimes. Uh, I, I don't know when I'm going to be able to afford uh, a production staff here. It would really speed things along if I had a team uh, to work with me on this project. And if anybody out there wants to make a few bucks editing podcasts, you can always hit me up and uh, I'll consider it if you work cheap. You know, a lot has happened since our last episode. I was down in Indianapolis. You may have seen the tweets that I sent out from the ABA's 50th anniversary reunion celebration. What an incredible experience that was. All made possible by my friend Scott Tarter and the Dropping Dimes Foundation. And if you don't know about the Dropping Dimes Foundation, you can go back into the podcast archives and listen to uh, episodes with Dan Issel, George McGinnis, Dr. Dunk, Darnell Hillman, Bob Nedelicki, and all of them involved with the Dropping Dimes Foundation and the great work that's being done there. It was just an unbelievable night. I mean, I was standing at one point at the bar chatting it up with Artist Gilmore as if that was remotely normal. Absolutely uh, an amazing experience, and my thanks again to Scott Tarter and the Dropping Dimes Foundation. You know, the week after that, last month, I was out in Seattle, uh, first time I'd ever been in that fine city, a, a very rainy weekend that I spent uh, with Mrs. Super 70 Sports out there in Seattle, and got to see what wound up being, I suppose, uh, some of the very last games of Ichiro's career, although we didn't know it uh, at, at the time, and Stopped by uh, one of the coolest stores that I've ever been to. I have to tell you guys, if you are ever out in Seattle, do yourself a favor and go visit Ebbets Field Flannels because they have got some of the absolute coolest vintage baseball gear um, out there and stuff that you really can't find anywhere else. Uh, I, I picked up uh, my Roy Hobbs New York Knights cap that I am so proud of. I was just wearing it uh, earlier today. Whenever uh, anybody asks me anything, I just tell them that I, I got a little sidetracked. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm at least 50% more mysterious uh, since I have that. I just want to show up somewhere now and just start launching wiffle ball homers wearing that hat and have everybody wonder, like, where have you been all these years? 46-year-old wiffle ball monster. Such a great cap. I picked up a Kansas City Monarchs cap uh, as well and even got a Decatur Commies t-shirt. That's right. They're the Decatur Commies. And I, I got that for a buddy of mine. Among other items that I purchased, I ran up quite a tab there at Ebbets. Um, and uh, I, I warn you, have your credit card ready when you, uh, when you go uh, visit them. Uh, you, you can uh, check them out online at Ebbets.com. They're also on Twitter at Ebbets Vintage. But, but I promise you, you will find something you like uh, if you visit those guys. Also had a chance to grab lunch when I was out in Seattle with my pal Billy North. And uh, 
You know, Billy led the American League in stolen bases uh, in 1974 and 1976, won a couple of rings uh, with the athletics there, the, the, the great teams of the early 1970s. Uh, Billy's doing well and uh, looks like he could still get out there and swipe a couple of bags. So uh, it, was, it was really good uh, being able to catch up with him. But enough. Uh, about my travels. You didn't come here to hear about my vacation, uh, even though uh, I have been telling you all about it in excruciating detail. My guest today has certainly traveled more than I ever have and has seen more sports than me too. And he's he's seen them from the catbird seat because he is uh, one of the most influential and talented broadcasters in the world of sports. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the 2011 National Sportscaster of the Year, Mr. Dan Schulman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing very well, Ricky. How are you doing? I, I'm doing great, and I, I hope that was a good intro. I mean, you've, you've accomplished so much uh, in your career. You're still a young man, but your resume is very impressive, so uh, I, I wasn't sure where to go there. I could have said ESPN's uh, The Voice of College Basketball, uh, Voice of Sunday Night baseball in the past for ESPN, but I figure we'll settle on National Sportscaster of the Year. Uh, that's very nice of you. I, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I consider myself very lucky to uh, be able to do what I do. I mean, like you, I love sports. and uh, Yeah, I, I've had a lot of fun doing a lot of different things, and, and I think, uh, you know, I, I still pinch myself every now and so let's start out with what we ha- what I know we have in common, uh, even though this is the first time that we've ever spoken directly. Uh, you were a child of the 70s. You were born in 67, which kind of was the perfect age uh, to, be, uh, to be during the 70s, I think. You really grew up uh, throughout that decade. And I was born in 71. I'm just a little bit younger than you, but... I would imagine that we uh, share quite a lot of the, the same experiences and, and loves as as kids who grew up being sports fans. Yeah, I would think so. And, and um, I'm a big fan of your Twitter feed, and that's you know that's what led us to eventually having this conversation on the podcast. But um, you know, it, it was a very unique decade. I mean, leaving sports aside just for a second, you know, you've got some TV references in there. I see Emergency and Adam Twelve. <laughs> Absolutely. And, It's interesting that you mentioned that in those days, televised sports 
compared to today, and don't get me wrong, I'm glad that we have the capacity to watch virtually whatever we want to, whenever we want. I I wouldn't want to go back necessarily to the way that it used to be, but do you think in, in some sense maybe we're a little bit oversaturated? Maybe we would appreciate more if we didn't have such universal availability? Yes, absolutely. But but like you said, the uh, you know you can't put the you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube on that one. And, and um, I, I mean that the ability to watch everything also allows somebody like me to work a lot too. So <laughs> right. I, I come at it from both sides. I'm glad you know I'm glad so many games are televised. And and you know I, I have three boys. Two of them are big sports fans, and they're getting a little bit older now. But it, it, it's fun to you know to have my son walk into the room and and. And on any night, and for him to say, well, I want to watch the Cavs and Lakers tonight, or I want to watch Duke and Carolina tonight, or whatever the case may be, whatever the sport may be. So, you know, he doesn't know anything different. What what I remember, and you probably do as well, although I'm a few years older, you know, for baseball, I remember Saturday afternoon baseball, uh, which, of course, was huge. And you've had a couple of references to it, I think, on the Twitter feed. I mean, that was the game of the week, and that was a chance for me to see the Cardinals play the Dodgers. And whoever saw the Cardinals play the Dodgers, I, I mean, I didn't know what those, you know, I didn't know what Steve Garvey and Ron Say looked like until that game came on TV. So, um, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. And, and it, I, I think back then as a kid, I agree with you, you know, having, because you didn't have as much supply, it, it really, it really made you love sports more. And, and as a kid, and to this day, I've done some ridiculous things to go on sports trips, whether it's with buddies or kids or my sons to, to go see games, like just crazy stuff for somebody who already sits at a ballpark or an arena as much as I do. But, uh, you know what, it's, it's what I love and it's been uh, a huge part of my life personally and professionally. And, and I hope it stays that way. Well, that's a question that I think is interesting. And it sounds like this isn't something that's afflicted you, but if you do what you love for a living, is there, is there any possibility? Do you know people in the industry that to some degree maybe have, lost that passion to to enjoy sports as recreation because they're doing it as as vocation yeah i i do and 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 i don't watch quite as much for fun as i used to um you know because my brain doesn't work as well as it used to when i was younger uh, i have to devote a large part of it to major league baseball and college basketball because those are the two sports that i work on um so from an nfl point of view for example I'm a big Green Bay Packers fan, as is my youngest fan or my youngest son. I'll watch the Packers. It's very unlikely I'm going to sit down and watch the Saints in the Bounce. I'll watch the Packers play. I'll try to watch some playoff games. NBA, I'll watch the Raptors because I live in Toronto. So you get the idea. I still love sports, but I wouldn't say I've lost the passion for uh, the recreational part of it. Um, you just don't have as much time. But, yeah, you, you don't do it quite as much maybe as you did when you were a kid. But, uh, yes, I, without naming names, I do know some people – um, who have just, I guess it's have been there, done that, seen it all, you know, traveled a million miles, been in a million arenas and ballparks, and, and they've kind of grown tired of that. And, and, and you know, to each his own. They get, into, they get into travel, they get into wine, they get into cooking, they get into whatever they want to get into. So, um, but I, I, I think I'm lucky because two of my boys are really into it. That's, that's helped keep me a little bit connected. But now it's funny, when I was a kid, I would say to my dad, well, how can, how can you not remember who the double flight combination for the Tigers is. We just talked about it, but now I'm that guy in other sports. <laughs> you know, I can't remember the quarterback or the. And, and now my kids are saying, "What do you mean you don't remember who the quarterback was? We 
just talked about it last week. So, you know, my, my kids are helping me stay uh, in touch with some of the other sports. Well, I want to get into talking about college basketball and, and Major League Baseball with you, but let me ask you the standard question that I'm sure you've gotten a thousand times, but how did you get into broadcasting, and when did you realize that this is what you would like to do with your life? It's a very long story, and I'll give you as short an answer as I can. So uh, I didn't study this in college, I, although a lot of people have come up to me and assume I went to Syracuse like a lot of broadcasters. Uh, I did not, although my, my son, who's a senior in high school, is heading there next year because uh, he wants to get into this. But uh, I was an actuarial science major. I was a math guy. Uh, I worked as an actuary for a few months. And on the side at my school in London, Ontario, which was then known as the University of Western Ontario, now it's Western University, on the side, I kind of messed around at the radio station, and I broadcast some Western basketball, football games, had a talk show. Now, this is not on as big a scale, you know, if you're going to Michigan or Ohio State or doing that kind of a thing. So, But I did it just for fun, but I graduated as an actuary, started working as an actuary, and after a few months, uh, I just wasn't happy and went to my parents and kind of said, listen, I'm, I'm thinking of making a change, and I this is pre-internet again, so you're like mailing out cassette tapes, uh, demo tapes, and, and I eventually got a, a weekend job for six bucks an hour uh, in a city called Barrie, Ontario, about 50 miles north of Toronto, and started doing radio, newscasts, sportscasts, weather traffic, um, farm report, uh, elections, you know, police, anything you anything you could think of, and I, I just got really lucky. Uh, the station in Toronto was starting to go all sports. I had a friend of a friend of a friend who had a connection there. I got an interview. As soon as I got there, the Blue Jays won a couple of World Series. The Maple Leafs were really good. Uh, by fluke, somebody at ESPN heard me and offered me an opportunity there and, and so on and so forth. So it was never what I intended to do, um, but it's uh, I feel extremely lucky that I fell into this. And you, you used the phrase, do what you love, uh, a little bit earlier. And, and you know, I tell my boys, you, you you may as well. You're going to do it for 40 years, whatever it is. Uh, you know, you, we should all try to make ourselves happy, and doing something you love helps. Let's talk a little bit about the craft of what you do, because we as sports fans, we, we tune in, and the broadcasters are obviously, for good or for bad, they're a big part of the of the telecast, and uh, that goes from the folks who take criticism on social media and the folks who are uh, beloved and, and everything in between. Obviously, uh, you guys are, are a big part of the experience of watching a game on television or listening to a game on the radio. You have said before that being a play-by-play man is like being a point guard. And I, I think of it in terms of how many different people you've worked with through the years. All the different guys who have been sitting in that seat next to you. How do you adapt to the strengths of different color analysts, and how long does it take, uh, generally speaking, for those kinds of relationships to gel? Uh, it's a good question, and, and I've, I actually have a, a Word document on my computer where I try to keep track just for fun uh, of all the people that I've worked with in both baseball and basketball. It, it, it's, a, it's a fun list. I, I mean, uh, you know, Hubie Brown, when I did NBA games for ESPN, worked with Hubie Brown, did a couple of ESPN radio games with Dr. Jack Rams. He did some baseball games with Joe Morgan, you know, all kinds of uh, different people who have had tremendous careers. And, and um, it, it, it is a process, but I, you're right, I do use the point guard analogy because I, I kind of think of the producer, he's the coach, and, and I'm point guard, and it's my job to move the ball around. If, um, you know, going back to the booth I worked with last year in Sunday Night Baseball, if I got 
I got Aaron Boone in one corner and Jess Mendoza in the other corner, and I got to decide who, you know, who gets the ball, who's going to knock down the shot. So, and I'd much rather get the assist than the bucket. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to move the ball around. So, but it does take some getting used to because every analyst is is obviously different. Working with Dick Vitale is a very different experience from working with Jay Billis, from working with Dan Dockage, from working with Sean Funk, and whatever the whatever the case may be. So. Uh, it takes a little while. Some people you feel comfortable after a game or two. Some people it takes longer than that. So, But, uh, you know, they adjust to me. I adjust to them. And I think if we've all got the same goal in mind, which is just making the overall broadcast as good as possible, I don't think it takes very much time. Well, you mentioned Hubie Brown. And I have to tell you, Hubie is one of my favorite guests that I've ever had on this podcast because I'm convinced that Hubie is a genius. Uh, Hubie is a high-functioning guy and the way that his mind still works at the age of 84 is uh, you know I wish that I could get mine to function like that now much less uh, whatever I'm going to be dealing with uh, in three or four decades what was it like working with Hubie it was fantastic and I will say this in all sincerity and not just because you're asking me about it now Hubie Brown is one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life he's one of my favorite people that I've ever met and and, and I remember because I was nervous the first game I ever did was with Hubie and he could not have done more to make me feel comfortable and and we get to the under six timeout the first time out of the first quarter and he makes a motion like take your headset off so I take my headset off and I don't do a good Hubie impression so uh, <laughs> forgive me in advance but yeah, I take I take my headset off and he goes now I'm comfortable is there anything I can do what and, and I'm like Hubie I'm supposed to say that to you you're the Hall of Famer I, I'm the new guy here. Like, I'm supposed to make you comfortable. I go, no, no, forget that, forget that. So, but he is, he's the absolute best. And if you're a basketball fan, they should auction off for charity a dinner with Hubie Brown where you just get to sit and talk basketball because he, his, his mind is unbelievable. His memory is unbelievable. And you can say to him, hey, Hubie, when you were coaching Bernard back in the, in the playoffs in 76, and he'll start moving salt shakers and glasses and spoons around. <laughs> Showing you the plays that that the big moment of that game, and it's just fascinating. It, it really is. He is. Um, I mean, he's a an icon. But as great as he has been for the sport, I, I think people should know he is one of the best, best, most genuine people I've ever met in my life. Well, I can tell you the conversation that I had with him. We went. I want to say we went about an hour and a half <laughs> or something like that. And huh. honestly, I, I think I learned more about basketball in that single conversation than any other day of my life. I, I think it's a safe thing to say. He's just, it was a master class, and he's just <laughs> doing it off the top of his head. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, they, they used to, and I was never there because I don't live in Bristol, Connecticut, where ESPN is, but every now and again, I think they had three or four of them. QB and Dr. Jack would do just like a town hall basketball thing, and any employee could go, and from what I understand, they were off the charts. This was a little bit before the day of streaming or, or WebExing, you know, where they could, where we could all watch it from home. So I never got a chance to see them. But boy, I would have loved to have been there. Now, comparing that to baseball, which is the other sport that that you're most known for, obviously, you worked with a lot of different guys: Oral Hershiser, John Cruck, Aaron Boone, the, the Buck Martinez, the, the list goes on and on. I, and Joe Morgan, you mentioned, and we're probably just scratching the surface there. What makes a really good color man, whether we're talking about basketball or any or any other sport? Well, uh, I think it's the ability to explain. 
explain to people at home why things are happening. And the tricky part is you can have the hardcore fan and you can have the casual fan. And you don't want to talk beneath the hardcore fan. You don't want to talk above the casual fan. So I think it's somebody who has the ability to relate to all different kinds of fans and can, uh, you know, can uh, I'm the what and the color guy's the why. I tell you what's happening and the analyst is supposed to tell you why it's happening. It's somebody who can who can teach you something you didn't know before the game. You know, here's uh, here's why they're playing the pick and roll that way, or here's why they don't have the infield in at this moment. And, and I think like everything, you've got to do it. it it's got to be a mix of information and entertainment. And some people skew far to the information end of the spectrum, and some people skew far to the entertainment end of the spectrum. And that's fine. We're all different. And um, it, it's just the ability to, to, connect, to, to connect with your viewers and have them finish a game and the next day at the water cooler say, you know, hey, hey, did you hear what Dockage said? Or, hey, did you hear what Hershiser said? Or did you hear what Booney said? Or whatever the case may be. So um, I think chemistry is important, too. And, and you can have good chemistry between a play-by-play man um, and an analyst. But the better chemistry you have off the air, the better chemistry you have on the air. I've always believed that. And, and you know, if you're friends off the air and you have dinner together before the, the night before the game and you talk about baseball and you love it, whatever the case may be, I think you have much better chemistry on the air, too. And, and I remember, so you mentioned Buck Martinez for people who, if, you know, for uh, because Buck was and, again, is uh, my partner to a living extent now doing Toronto Blue Jays games. So he was the guy who broke me in with Toronto back in 1995. And he told me, like, on day two, he said, hey, let's just pretend this is two of us sitting at a bar watching a baseball game and, and let's make it sound like that. And he was right. And, and I love that. And, and my favorite kind of shows to do are when it feels like it's just two or three people sitting at a bar watching a game. Now, I selfishly, I, I hate it that, uh, that both yourself and, and Aaron Boone have, have moved on from Sunday night baseball because I enjoyed your work so much. Two-part question here. One, how difficult was it for you to make the decision to move on from from that post? And I'll let you answer that first. And then after that, I want to talk about uh, Booney taking over the the Yankees' job. Uh, but but what but what about what, what about yourself first? Uh, moving away from what uh, you know is a destination type gig, I'm sure, in the minds of lots of people, including myself. Uh, you know, I'm. Uh, was only the second person to have the job. Matt Vestrush will be the third. John Miller, of course, legendary guy, was the first. It, it was very difficult, and um, I mean, some people know I've done it, some people don't. Some people know why, some people don't. But it, it was done for uh, personal reasons. I'm getting remarried, and, and again, as I said up the top, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm blessed to have the job that I do. But um, when you when you're a play by play guy and you do two sports and you work year round, you're on the road a ton, and you're on the road every weekend, basically. So. And I just made a choice, you know, entering into this new stage of my life that I wanted to be home a little bit more. And uh, I had a relationship with the Blue Jays from doing their games from 1995 to 2001. And uh, they were interested, they've been interested over the years. And, you know, do you want to come back and do some? And, and uh, I was actually coaching my son in travel baseball, so I could never commit to, to doing a local team because of the time commitment the coaching takes. But the coaching and the Sunday night baseball worked together very well because I was able to beat a lot of the stuff during the week but you know when I entered this new stage and knew I was going to get uh, be getting married again I, I just decided I wanted to get off the road a little bit and, and because I had this connection with the Blue Jays I thought I could keep college basketball and the Blue Jays have been wonderful to me I'm doing a limited package of games for them this year it'll be 50 it'll be mostly home games 
So I, I just did it to, to be home a little bit more. But yes, hard decision. Yes, mixed feelings. Love the people I worked with. Yes, it's a destination job. And believe me, Ricky, a lot of people came up to me and said, what's going on? What's the real story? Like, And, and that's the real story. I do, I, uh, the real story is no, uh, is, is nothing other than what I've just told you. But, um, you know, sometimes change is good, but I, I, I will miss it a great deal. I, I spent a lot of years doing baseball at ESPN and eventually was lucky enough to, to get to the Sunday night show. But uh, it, it's just something I feel going forward is best for me. So your buddy there in the booth... Uh, yeah. Also moving on this year, taking taking his first managerial job in quite a, a location. I'm sure that there will be hardly any pressure at all on on Aaron Boone. What what what, what do you what do you <laughs> think like about got this? The game <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's great. So Aaron and I are extremely close friends. He's one of my closest friends on earth, and, and we've worked together for a few years, and, and we get along great. And so he was kind of keeping me abreast of the situation as things were going. But as he has said, I'm not giving away anything here. Um, in October, during the playoffs, a couple of teams had reached out to him about opportunities. And I was a little surprised when he called me and said, Brian Cashman just called and, and they want to know if I want to come in an interview. That part, I, I didn't think he'd get it. I wasn't sure that he'd get a managerial interview right out of the shoot. But I did think if he got a managerial shot, that he'd be great in the interview. And as soon as he was on the list, I thought he had a great, great chance at it. And I'm thrilled for him. Uh, I think he's going to do well. He's as good a communicator as I know. He's one of those guys that everybody you know has only good things to say about. Oh, I love Boone. I mean, you know, he's got, he just relates to everybody. He's got time for everybody. I think he'll be a great communicator with his players, great communicator with the media. Uh, there is some pressure. I mean, they're, they're built to win now. And that's an unusual situation, as you know, for a, for a new manager to take over. Uh, next week, I'm going down to spring training. I've got some Blue Jays stuff to do down there, a couple of games. And the Blue Jays open up the season against the Yankees. And so my Blue Jay bosses, my TV bosses in Toronto, have asked me to interview Aaron uh, for them to do a feature on and pregame show on opening day before the Yankees play the Blue Jays. So we've arranged that. And I, I don't know how much is going to be left on the editor's report because I'll try to do an interview with him, but we're just going to sit. I, I think we're going to giggle a little bit because that's that's the kind of relationship we have. Well, if if Game Seven of the World Series on radio is Aaron's final broadcast, he went out on top because he made a Tanner Boyle reference, and I was <laughs> I was driving in my car and. Uh, Boone goes Tanner Boyle on me, so uh, yeah. you know I, I, yeah. sh- I shot him off a direct message uh, <laughs> on Twitter and just said, "Well played." And I believe you tweeted not long after that. that well, you, so, you want to hear? You want to hear a funny story about that day? So you send him the direct message, and I was the one who had told him about your Twitter feed. So you send him the direct message, and he go, he calls me Schlu. He goes, "Hey Schlu," and I go, "What?" And he goes. He says, I got to tell you something, but I don't know if it's going to bother you. And I said, what? And he goes, the guy from Super 70 Sports, he just sent me a direct message. And he goes, I know you turned me on to this, but he sent me a message. <laughs> he, was, he was getting on me all day about the direct message. So, yeah, I, I remember that moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. That was good stuff. I thought to myself, people ask me all the time, well, you know, a lot of cool stuff happens uh, to you probably running this account. But I think you uh, uh, tweeting that during Game 7, uh, one of my all-time uh, favorite That's moments. Funny. But uh, I, I want to ask you just kind of potpourri here as we as we come down the stretch. 
some of the some of the big games, most famous moments that you that you've been present for, and I I believe one of them uh, was a big deal here in Chicago, uh, which was the Steve Bartman game in the uh, 03 NLCS. Take me back, and I can listen. I'm a Cubs fan, but I can I can handle this story a little bit better given that we exercised some demons in 2016 take me back to the Bartman game and what it was like being there as that bizarre scenario unfolded what I remember so they come home up three to two and it's prior in six and wood in seven if I'm not mistaken and I mean this is prior in the wood like you know this is legit and I remember uh, I don't know if you read the game or not but I remember Wrigleyville feeling like it was a party before the game. They, they thought they were into the World Series. And I, I remember thinking, boy, guys, cause again, being a Maple Leafs fan, you know, a lot of similar stuff between Maple Leafs and Cubs, although the Cubs have exercised the defense and the Cubs were longer, obviously, than Maple Leafs have been that championship. But I remember thinking to myself, guys, come on, you know better than this. Don't do this. And, and now the game's going along and they're winning. Uh, and when it gets to the eighth inning um, and, and the ball is hit down the line, and people have asked me this a million times, and the honest answer is, I don't know. But the, the question I, I get asked in general is, when you're doing a baseball game, do you look at the monitor, which is the same thing you see at home watching TV, or do you look at the field? And my answer always is, I look at the monitor until the ball is hit. Once the ball's in play, I look live at the field. I want to see what's going on, where the ball is down the line, whatever. That ball gets hit in the air, but that ball is, you know, with me being up top in Wrigley, that ball is 350 feet away from me you know, at the least. And I don't remember if I was watching the monitor down the line, but that ball's going down the line, and here comes a loo. And, you know, as you know, it wasn't like just Steve Bartman stood up and tried to catch the ball. Everybody there stood up and tried to catch the ball. And uh, I don't, in the moment, I didn't remember what my call was. I've heard it a few times since, so I have a general recollection of it now. But um, it was stunning. And I, I think I reverted to kind of broadcasting 101, which is when, it, when in doubt, just say what you see. And it was something like, and a fan takes it out of his glove. And, and I remember saying there shouldn't be interference because Alou was reaching into the stands. But in that moment, the entire vibe, it was like, you know, the, the cliche, the air got let out of the balloon. And it was like you were said to yourself, oh, so this is how it's going to happen. Now, of course... They've since broken the curse, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. But, yeah, if you're asking me about significant sporting events that I've been at, that is top five without a question. All right. Well, now, not to put you on the spot, I'm not going to ask you to rattle off the rest of your top five, but what's uh, you know a couple of others that come to mind when you're when you're looking back over the, the many events that you've been in the booth or, right. or at uh, courtside for? So doing largely college basketball and Major League Baseball, uh, regular season for me at ESPN. We don't have the tournament. Uh, and in baseball, we don't have the playoffs on TV other than a wild card game. So I, I went to ESPN radio. So a lot of my moments are baseball playoffs, ESPN radio. And another one that has to be on my top five is for you as well because you're a Cubs fan, and that's when they win it in Cleveland in Game 7. I mean, if them, you know, if them winning for the first time in over a century isn't in your top five, you got a pretty good list. So it was, it was fun to be there for that. The first World Series I did, because John Miller did the World Series on radio for many, many years, the first World Series I did was 2011, St. Louis, Texas. And on the surface, that may know, Cardinals Rangers may not seem like the sexiest, the most memorable, but Game 6 of that series, as you probably remember, uh, was when the Rangers 
Rangers were a strike away from winning the World Series not once but twice. Uh, the first time, more memorably, when David Kreese hit the ball over Nelson Cruz's head in right field for the triple, the tied in the ninth. Hamilton homers in the 10 for Texas. Berkman ties it up and then frees homers in the 11th to win the game. And then they win the on that side to win the World Series. So that one was huge. One more baseball one, also for ESPN Radio. Being from Toronto, I, I was lucky enough to do Game 5, Toronto, Texas, the southeast of Baptist. My parents and my two, two of my boys, ones I talked about earlier, were in seats that night. And, you know, the top half of the inning, as you may remember, was when they almost rioted when Russell Martin, the ball hit. He threw the ball back to the mound. It hit Shinsu Chu's bat, bounced out into the field. Texas scored the go-ahead or the tying run on that play. But then Bautista hit the three-run homer in the bottom of the seventh inning. And it's, it's, it is, without a doubt, the loudest, craziest, most uh, electricity-filled event that I've had. It didn't feel like a sporting event. It felt like a riot was going to break out until Bautista hit that home run. So that was a big one. College basketball, uh, again, doing just regular season games, so I don't have any NCAA tournament experience. But um, I've been incredibly fortunate to go to just about every cool place you can go to. And as we speak now, I'm, I'm still in the midst of the ACC tournament in Brooklyn. And last night was the 22nd Duke Carolina game. I do, and I know for a lot of people around the country, yeah, yeah, not Duke Carolina, but it, it's really cool. It's really cool to do a Duke Carolina game, and, and there have been some good ones. And so, uh, I would say that those are my top. Thinking of venues, you know, you've talked about the travel and and what a grind that can be in your profession. You've been to so many different uh, places at this point after having called sports for all these years. What are some of your favorite venues? Be it uh, be it baseball, be it basketball. Where do you where do you get a kick uh, out of going? Or maybe some of them aren't even you know in existence anymore. What are the ones that uh, have meant the most to you? Well, for baseball, I love going to Wrigley and Fenway, and I remember the first time distinctly I walked into Wrigley Field how cool it was. So. Those two are in a whole separate category. Of the other 28, uh, AT&T Park in San Francisco is, is fantastic. It, it just is. It, it's gorgeous. The backdrop, the breeze, the garlic fries, the whole thing. It's just great. Everything, I don't know if you've been there, but everything you read and hear about it, it's true. I took the tour uh, uh, great. last year. Oh, you did? Okay. Good. I did, and it was great. Yeah. And I, I'm going back out there this year to see a game because the tour doesn't – it's awesome, but you know I want to see a game there. But it it was it blew my mind. Yeah, it lived up to the hype for sure. It's great. The the sneaky good ones that I like that maybe don't get enough publicity. Pittsburgh's beautiful. It's great. Uh, I think Seattle is great. Haven't been there in many years, and I think Petco in San Diego is also. I love the warehouse. I I, I love the fact that the corner of the building is the fountain down the left field line. So. Um, you know, we've talked about the 70s. You get into the 80s, everything was cookie cutter, and that's no fun. So I like some of the quirks that they brought back into the into the newer retro ballparks. Uh, college basketball, my favorite place is Kansas, Allen Fieldhouse. It is absolutely off the charts. It feels like when you walk in the door, you're walking through a time machine, and now you're back in the 1950s. And like if Will Chamberlain walked out on the court, you wouldn't even blink. It's just, it's so cool. And none of the cheers and all, it doesn't sound contrived or, or pre-planned or anything. It's just history right there. Uh, Duke is great. And in, when Indiana's good, Indiana, going to Bloomington is absolutely phenomenal. So I would say Kansas, Duke, and Indiana, probably my top three. And in terms of places, this is not, this is not Dan the broadcaster now. This is Danny the little boy. But, uh, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, growing up in Canada, uh, I was, a freak Maple Leafs 
fan, Daryl Fiddler, the captain, was, is, always will be my favorite athlete. They were pretty good then, especially by Maple Leaf standards. And my dad was a dentist. He had one patient who, instead of uh, taking payment from for dental work, he would get a few Maple Leaf tickets. The guy had season tickets. He would take Maple Leaf tickets instead of money. So I, I think it's something my mom found out and kind of kiboshed that. But for a while, he was taking tickets. And so I was the oldest, and my sisters didn't like hockey. I don't have a brother. My sisters didn't like hockey. So my dad and I would go to four or five Maple Leaf games a year. And as luck would have it, this guy's season tickets, they were they were right in the corner by the face-off circle, first row. So actually, if, if there are all these hockey books from the 70s. Uh, where you can see pictures of me and my dad or my dad and my mom or something like that because, you know, newspaper pictures and stuff because it was right by the face-out circle. So going to Maple Leaf Gardens, which is long gone, uh, the, the outside, the exterior of the building still exists, but the interior is totally different. But going to Maple Leaf Gardens uh, as a kid with my dad to watch the Maple Leafs uh, is, is as good a memory as I have in my life. I think that there are probably few people out there in the world of sports who have their finger uh, better on the pulse of college basketball or Major League Baseball than yourself. And I, I wanted to ask you a, a question about each of those here as, as we conclude. This isn't going to air until the the tournament is over, probably. So I won't ask for your I won't ask for your picks, or <laughs> or I'll, uh, I'll I'll allow you later. I'll tell you what you can you can just rattle off ten or twelve different teams, and then I'll just plug in the one, and we'll, we'll make you look like you were a genius. But I, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the state of college basketball right now between the. The FBI investigation uh, that's you know ongoing. What happened with Rick Pitino and, and the University of Louisville? The the idea that one and done could possibly be done. Uh, a stormy time for for college uh, basketball, college athletics in general, but particularly basketball. Where do you see the health of uh, of the game today, and where do you think it's going to be in a few years, Dan? I'm a little worried about it. Not necessarily the health, but I, I think changes are going to be made. As you said, it's a stormy time, and so many things have happened. I think it, I think enough people realize now the system, as it currently exists, needs to be altered. Uh, but I don't know what the perfect answer is. I don't like the one and done, but I don't think the one and done is the root of all evil. And I do think if you want to come out of high school and go directly to the NBA, you should be allowed to. If you come out of high school, you can get drafted in baseball, and you can go play pro. You can do the same in hockey. I don't see why you shouldn't be able to in basketball. What I worry about being, you know, I mean, I love the NBA, don't get me wrong, but as a guy who's really, you know, emotionally invested in, in, in every way in, in college basketball, I think they're going to let kids come out of high school, and it wouldn't surprise me if two, four, six years from now, the NBA has a, a more significant layered minor league system than they do now, and that more and more kids bypass high, uh, college basketball to go pro. Because, listen, I, I love watching Marvin Bagley. I love watching Mo Bamba. I, I love watching DeAndre Ayton. But it, it does feel like a bit of a way station. Yes, they get a year of education. We hope they do anyways. They build relationships. A lot of them give money back to their schools. And, and there are some good things coming out of it. But I think if you said to Marvin Bagley last year, you can go pro, are you going to do it? He's going pro. So is Bamba. So is Ayton. So is Trey Young. They're all, a lot of them are going. So... I, I worry in the future that if too many of them have viable options to go and they go play, quote, minor league basketball, make a decent living until they're ready to get to the NBA if they're that good. I think college basketball is going to suffer a little bit. I know college baseball is very popular, but it's not college basketball. I think I think if 
Major League Baseball 2018. Um, looking ahead to this season, so much gnashing of teeth about speeding up the game. And that seems to be a narrative that uh, is going to continue, particularly if we get a month or two into the season and we see that games are still taking as long as they did last season. Where do you come down on this issue? Is this is it a big deal to you? Is it is is this overdone? The the issue that baseball needs to be it's the pace needs to improve. Uh, I think it's a pretty big deal, to be honest with you. I, I mean, on most nights, I'm happy to sit there, but is my 17 year old going to be happy to sit? And when he's old, my age, will his 17 year old be happy to sit there? I mean, when, when you and I watched a baseball game as a kid. We had 12 channels, and we only really cared about three of them, probably. <laughs> and true. if the game was on, the game was on. Yeah, if the game was on, the game was on. But now you got your laptop and your iPad and your phone, and you've got a lot of things going on. And it's a different world now than it was. So for that reason, not because you know I, I, I want to make a late dinner reservation, for, for the reason that I hope the game stays relevant to my kid and his kids, I think they need to do something. It, it, it's it, it's gotten out of hand, and it's almost like you know the parents give the kids the rules, and you know you can stretch the rules a little bit here and there, but they've they've abused the privilege. And, and I don't know how a pitch. I, I I struggle with the concept of a pitch clock. I, I really do. I think there are ways to speed up the game. I think they've taken some very small steps in the right direction, but I think the players will find loopholes in the visits to the mound thing and so forth. I don't think it truly works until the players are on board, and I, and I don't know how you do that because the vast majority of the players I've heard speak about it are really, really opposed to this thing. So, uh, but I, I do think something's got to be done, you know. And then October's a whole other story because a three-hour, ten-minute game takes four hours and ten minutes in October, and everybody says, "Well, it's October. You want to get it right," and, and I understand that, but you also want the twelve-year-olds to be who live in New York who live in the East Coast, you, want, you don't want their, the game going after midnight. You want them to be able to stay up and watch Game 7 of the World Series. So, uh, sorry, long answer to a short question. But yes, I think they've got to do something about it. But I think this is a, uh, I think it's going to be a difficult thing. I think it's going to take a lot of years for them to figure it out. I've come around on the pitch clock. I'm a traditionalist in many respects, and I've, I've come around on it. I think I would be okay with trying a pitch clock and seeing if it does any good. What do you think? Yeah, I would like to know more. Yeah, I, I, I should spend more time because they've done it in, in the Arizona Fall League and in some of the low minors, and I'd like to see how it works. I'd be fine, too, but so what if you have something in your eye? Or, you know, is it only when nobody's on base? Is it only after a pitch where you don't swing? You know, what if you say you need to go get some more rosin? I mean, baseball, I love baseball. Baseball is so unlike any other sport and I think if the players really want to find loopholes they'll find loopholes so you know then do you want the umpire and what what are the penalty too that's the other well see that's the exactly that's the question if the pitcher steps off he had a ball you know I I think we've really got to understand the it it can't just be it can't just be guys don't do it because we don't want you to do it it's got to be don't do it and if you do here's what's going to happen otherwise there's no shot and isn't that kind of where we're at with this limiting mound visits to six i know wilson Contreras here in chicago he he said look if it's the ninth inning i don't care how many mound visits we have left i'm going out there and they can find me yeah Yeah. that's probably the attitude it can't be justified 
Yeah, it has to be something within the game. It has to be the equivalent of a balk or a base or a ball or something. It has to be. The only way for them to do this is to have the penalty be game-related, something that can hurt the team. You know, you know again, growing up in, in Canada and watching a lot of hockey, I mean, if there's a, some sort of a violation, you know, if a guy's got a stick that's curved illegally, uh, I don't know, maybe they find him, maybe they don't, but he gets a penalty. That stops it. You don't, you don't want to get a penalty. So uh, I, I think they've got to make the punishment be something within the framework of the game. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot on this one. Uh, who do you have this year? Uh, October, g- g- give me a matchup. I tell you, you're letting me off the hook. I spent all kinds of time preparing to tell you about the Hartford Whalers jersey, the Kansas City Scouts jersey, the, oh, well, now, the Houston Astros jersey. Oh, well, now hang on. We we, we can still do that. I, I was going to forward you the picture of my kid playing hockey in his Tiger Williams Vancouver Canucks with the black, red, and yellow V and all that stuff. Oh, so, my gosh. Wow. Um, who do I have? Yeah, <laughs> I've, bl- I've blown it. Okay, well you're gonna have to you're gonna have to come back yeah. on l- later, and we'll have to get into that stuff. Uh, in the playoffs this year, um, I-, I think the I-, I think the Astros are still are still the team to beat. Certainly in our league, uh, my friend Mr. Boone is a great team. They do a great job, and you know the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Indians are all going to be really good. But uh, I think I would. Uh, uh, I would pick the Houston Astros. I'm struggling a little bit more uh, in the National League. Um, part of me every year wants to say, well, of course the Washington Nationals are going to get there because look at them, but they haven't been able to do it. And, and I still think there's kind of there's just kind of something they're lacking. You know what the Giants had when they won the World Series? That incredible, don't give up determination, get over the hump, fight through it. You know, I'm a big believer in all that funny stuff. So. Um, I, I think the Giants had a lot of it when when they were winning World Series, but um, I, I know you want me to say the Cubs. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, you know what? I think I might. I, I think the Dodgers. Uh, I think the Dodgers might take a little bit of a step back this year. Their division's really tough. I think the NL West is going to be really good this year. So, uh, how about if we go uh, the Astros repeating by beating the Cubs in the World Series? All right, that still sounds like a National League matchup. I, I I'm having trouble know, wrapping my yeah. <laughs> Astros against the Dodgers in the World Series. Just sounds like uh, some really solid uh, NL West action to me. Even yeah. all these yeah. years later. Yeah. Well, Dan Shulman, I, I can't thank you enough. I enjoy your work so much, and uh, look forward to all the moments that are to come. I appreciate that. Thanks for the time today. My thanks again to Dan Schulman, and we really are going to have to get Dan back on the show so he can talk about the Hartford Whalers and the Vancouver Canucks jersey uh, that his son has. Uh, Dan is a fine Canadian, uh, a hockey fan, and uh, I feel like I, I kind of bummed him out by uh, not talking about some of the classic 70s and 80s stuff. But what a pleasure to pick the brain of one of the best in broadcasting because few guys have ever done it any better than Dan Schulman. Uh, a great, great talent, great guy as well. And uh, again, big thanks to Dan for coming on the show today. You know, this is normally where I will tell you about next week's guest and try to get you all excited for uh, next week's show. And while I do have a couple of guests in the pipeline, I'm not really sure what my batting order is yet. So we're just going to leave this one uh, to, to be a surprise. Uh, in the immortal words of Cleveland Indians broadcaster Harry Doyle, I'm going to paraphrase him here, 
I don't know who the next guest is going to be, but I'm sure he'll do a hell of a job. So now, if you guys will excuse me, I'm going to throw on my New York Knights cap. I'm going to head outside, and I'm going to see how many Wiffle moonshots that I can launch over the neighbor's house. So until next time, this is Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. <laughs>